Well, I have a pretty short sermon today, I think. I mean, who knows? I have maybe like a a few lines of text. Um, I really just want to um, kind of prep the way for uh, our alcohol sermon series without actually talking about it and also address something that uh, a number of you have talked about wanting uh, to be uh, us to talk about the whole idea of mental health and some of those things. I'm going to do neither adequately, uh, but at least enough to where you can kind of be thinking about some things and, uh, and maybe leave some time at the end to have some, uh, some questions for you. Okay, so my title uh, of this sermon is simply The Two Faces of Worldliness. That word, uh, word is thrown around a lot in Christian circles, even though it has almost no definition in the scripture. Uh, the whole idea of being worldly uh, is a concept there. The terminology, though, is not there. Worldliness is not ever used as a term. Uh, certainly, having too much in common with the world is a concept, but Christians often use this in a really defined way. And I want to try to kind of broaden this and really talk about two sides or two faces of what I would consider uh, what it looks like to really be a little bit too attached to the world, which is how we'll define worldliness. On the one hand is what many of us in religious circles tend to think about, which is just an indulgent, do-anything-I-want-to-do kind of lifestyle, no real rules, no real requirements, That's the easy one for us to talk about when it comes to worldliness. I think the harder one for most of us, particularly if we've matured in our faith, is the other end of how worldliness is talked about in Scripture, which is coming up with a whole list of arbitrary rules and requirements and regulations that make me feel really spiritual, but still have nothing to do with really relying on God's character or on his wisdom and power. And so I want to talk about those both equally, that that's really two faces of worldliness that we see in the scripture. On the one hand, just sort of indulgent living, doing what I want to do, and on the other hand, coming up with basically my own set of rules and requirements uh, to feel good about my own spirituality apart from really needing God at all. Both are very much in scripture talked about as worldly behaviors, as normal behaviors that the world and humans in the world engage in apart from a knowledge of and following of God, all right? And so those are kind of the two halves of this two faces of worldliness that I want to address uh, pretty quickly here. I think there are a number of stories that we could go back to uh, to point out this dichotomy, this comparison, this contrast. But one of my favorites is the prodigal son story. And I'll try not to get too much into how much I disagree with Casey uh, last week on his interpretation of the prodigal son. Um, but, uh, you know, the sermon was still really good, right? And particularly the uh, loving with your soul and heart and all that stuff. That's just what I focused on, and I ignored the rest of uh, what he said. I'm saying that on here uh, so that I can feel superior to him. And uh, so maybe if one day he listens to this, he'll be like, hey, remember that one time you totally called me out in front of your church? Uh, let's, let's talk about that. Um, so I'll sort of just get into that in a few moments. But I think the prodigal son story is a really great way of communicating this two faces of worldliness. And without going into the story in depth, I do want to say that there are no good characters in the prodigal son story. Nobody is actually a good character. And I know that might sound weird to you because we have a tendency in our American viewpoint to see God as the the father, the prodigal son as having repented and being forgiven, none of which I think is either a traditional view of those scriptures or an accurate view of the scripture. I think 
more in context, what's ultimately being talked about is God, as always, is the hero of the story. And he's not related to or showing himself as being connected to any of the characters. But he's dealing with what it means to be lost, okay, and to be found. To be lost and to be found. And in one of the things that we miss about the prodigal son story is both brothers are lost. And in my mind, they remain lost to the end of the story. But that's maybe neither here nor there, and maybe it's not the time to go and talk about that. The point is they reflect what I think are these two faces of worldliness. The go out in the world and do whatever I want uh, and indulge in whatever I want. And the other of, look at me, I've been doing all this stuff all the time, and I haven't been getting rewarded for coming back. And yet not realizing in the process that he himself is lost. That by... You know, not understanding that the reward was in doing the very things that he was doing as being the faithful son. He lost out completely trying to, you know, uh, exert his goodness or his religiosity over the brother that had been found and the father celebrated. Now, let's not get uh, too far off here. The father is not a very good uh, father in this situation, in my opinion. Uh, he doesn't even tell the older brother that the new brother has come in and begins to celebrate without him. If that's not proof enough that the father doesn't know what he's doing, uh, then I don't know. I could probably give you other examples of that. But the point is that in this story, get, we get sort of two sides, in my mind, of worldly behavior, of behavior apart from God. Now, the father could be a whole other third side, but we won't talk about that uh, today because that would be too confusing. And so I want to address this in really two points, and that's it. Uh, the first is that ultimately, uh, you know, worldliness is defined, in my mind, by two things. Number one is a lack, lack of respect for God's character, okay? I couldn't decide if this was for God's character or of God's character. So just go with whatever one you think is more grammatically correct. Lack of respect for God's character. In other words, live how I want. That God's character uh, doesn't define what good is, I sort of define what good is apart from that. I'm just going to sort of live how I want to live, all right? And the second thing is a lack of regard for people's well-being, okay? The sort of live-for-yourself mentality. So first, lack of respect for God's character, live how you want, and the second, lack of regard for people's well-being, live for yourself. So I want to talk about both of those, and I think what will be a somewhat structured way, so just... If it gets a little confusing or you get lost, uh, you can always stop me, you know. Um, Yeah. So in our small group, Joseph and my small group right now, we're studying through Revelation. And Revelation is really, really, really interesting, not just because it talks about some crazy-looking creatures uh, that if you actually tried to draw them would probably be pretty scary. Like if you ever came across someone's notebook of, like, Drawing Revelation characters. Sarah, I'm looking at you. Where's Sarah? Oh, no. Um, You would probably be pretty freaked out, right? Okay? Um, So, anyway, there's a lot in there. But one of the things that I think people have traditionally focused on and appreciated was the one thing that seems to make sense, and that's the letters to the churches. And and what's so cool about the letters to the churches uh, are that each church sort of represents, in my mind, a, a worldly way of looking at the world uh, with the exception of the two churches that kind of get the, uh, you know, Smyrna and the uh, Philadelphia church, they get almost just a kind of positive report card back, right? But the other churches have very distinctly different 
issues and problems. And if you read through Revelation, particularly with the help of a commentary, you're going to recognize just how much these churches uh, reflect um, sort of a lot of the issues that cultures and societies have uh, in such a short space. But anyway, I want to pick out two, two that are probably pretty common, the one at the beginning and the one at the end, okay? Because the church at Laodicea, which probably is the one we remember most because of the line that many of us have actually misinterpreted of would rather you be hot uh, or cold, right? And because you're neither, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth, right? Uh, First of all, the hot, cold thing isn't like a, we'd rather you to be like on fire for God or like dead for God. That doesn't actually make much sense if you think about that, right? Like why would God want someone to be like completely dead for him? Uh, Like not interested in him at all, right? Uh, This is one of the problems, guys, we have with reading Scripture is we read so much of our own American understanding of the world, the sort of pro and con, the good or bad. Literally, this text simply means they were in an area where they had to pipe in water, okay, from the north uh, in Colossus and in the mountains where there could actually be cold water, which was pretty useful. People preferred cold water to hot water, particularly in the heat of where they were at. This isn't Europe, okay? People don't drink water with no ice, uh, or they preferred hot water, which was useful because they didn't have to or, you know, heat it up and do things like that. That would come from Hierapolis, which was nearby, from the hot springs nearby. So simply, Jesus is just playing on, and one of the coolest things about the church, letters to the church in Revelation, is almost every statement is playing on some local custom or local uh, geography or some specific thing in that area that they would have picked up on immediately and been like, whoa, that was crazy. Like, that was so to us. To understand. And so in that sense, he's just simply saying to Laodicea, you guys are not useful at all. You're not hot. You're not cold. You live this sort of existence where you do what you want. You're no different than anyone else around you. And you're like lukewarm water that really is like the least good of either types of water. And so in this, in, in his charge to Laodicea, over and over again, he basically talks how much that they've blended into the culture around them, that the culture have give, has given them sort of ideas of what to be and how to look, and it's rendered them completely useless as a way to either challenge society or to make society better in the areas that they're in. They're basically just living in the easiest way possible, which is adopting the surrounding values, and in doing so, completely useless, like lukewarm water. And so I want to say that that's kind of the first face here or the first point of worldliness is when we live exactly like the people around us, never really questioning, is this the right behavior? Is this God's character? We unknowingly approve of the standards of good in our society without thinking about them, without questioning them, which have more to do with what's easy and what's normal and what's popular than it does with any sort of fixed absolute character that comes from God himself. And, uh, and we ultimately are just pretty useless to the people around us. And checking any kind of behavior uh, that, uh, or really any kind of purpose that doesn't fall in line with, uh, with what God is doing and who God is. In 1 Corinthians 10, 23, that's the first uh, passage I want to read, we're going to read four, and I think these are great ones for the next two weeks if you have kind of nothing else to do in your small group or if, uh, you know, you just have some extra time. Go back and try to study through these. These are scriptures that reflect very large themes in the New Testament, particularly in Paul's writing, all right? So I'm going to give you four passages, two here and then two in the next point, 
and I'm, I'm just trying to give you a quick snapshot of this, uh, what I would consider one of the major themes in New Testament, the, the two faces of worldliness, the sort of two sides of worldliness, the trap on either side of us of becoming worldly and ultimately being separated from God. So 1 Corinthians 10, verse 23, ready to roll? All right, 10, 23. Everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible. No, he's quoting lines from them. These, these quotes, the Corinthian church, like the American church, uh, had a lot of cliche phrases, all right? A lot of religious-sounding phrases that really didn't find any uh, source in biblical text, but were more just sort of like combinations of worldly thinking and Christian thinking, and they seemed to live more by these quotes and these principles than they did by, uh, you know, at least the Old Testament scriptures. And so anytime you see quotes here, it's not like Paul's quoting some document that you can go find. Corinthian, uh, the church at Corinth, more than any other church, had all of these sayings that Paul is just kind of dealing with one after the, uh, after the other. So these are some of their sayings. Everything is permissible, not everything is beneficial. Or he's countering that with yes, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything is constructive. Nobody should seek his own good, but the good of others. Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience. For the earth is the Lord, the Lord's, and everything in it. If some unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. But if anyone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it, both for the sake of the man who told you and for the conscience sake. The other man's conscience, I mean, not yours. For why should you be judged or why should my freedom be judged by another's conscience? If I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? So whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I try to please everybody in every way. For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Uh, the food sacrifice to idols thing is really hard for us to place in our own kind of cultural context for a lot of reasons. And I'm not going to talk about that much today, but we might talk about it a little bit during the alcohol series because some people have compared the food sacrifice to idols issue with drinking, and I don't think there's a great comparison. But certainly even in the churches to the Revelation, uh, or the churches in Revelation, the food sacrifice to idols is a big issue for them. Um, it shouldn't be too surprising for you because in the Jerusalem Council, uh, remember in Acts 15 where... Uh, the apostles get together and decide exactly what should the new Gentile converts be doing when they become uh, converts to Christianity. Like, do they need to follow the law? Do they need to become Jewish? Basically, they get like three things, which is really kind of strange, the things that are chosen. But one of those things is food sacrificed to idols. The sexual morality one probably makes sense to us, but then, you know, abstaining from strangled meats and things like that. I mean, it's just like, what exactly? That's some, some strange rules that those three would be picked out of all of them. It should tell us something that we look at those rules and think that's some really strange rules. But there was a lot underneath this that was significant that we don't have time to talk about. The point, though, in this passage is the Corinthians had gotten into a way of thinking where they were justifying a lot of what they were doing as, well, this is my right to do this. This is permissible. It's okay. No, it's not really a bad thing about it, okay? It's not really wrong. And Paul is saying, sure, it's not wrong, but it's also not beneficial in a lot of context. They're not just living based on what's not wrong or what's sort of okay, 
but you have a purpose in mind. You're not just living how you want to live. You've got purpose, that purpose based simply on communicating God's character to the people around you for their own good. Not everything is constructive. Not everything works to the good of those around us. And that's his simple, simple argument. Galatians 5, 13 through 15. And we'll we'll be in Galatians twice, so if you just want to earmark that, uh, you could do that as well. So Galatians 5, I wish all the G's were together. I don't know, T's are together, where's the G? Oh yeah, here we go. Galatians 5. Okay. Guys there, Galatians 5? 13 through 15. You, my brothers, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. And of course, this is a play on on words here, and he does this a lot. The idea that you would indulge the sinful nature by being free would be like, don't use your freedom to be enslaved again. I mean, that's, that's really what he's saying. You can't possibly be free and then decide to use your freedom to be a slave again. That, nobody does that. That would be crazy, okay? And that's exactly the kind of a thing he's saying, okay? Uh, so, uh, rather, serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out, or you will destroy, be destroyed by each other. So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. So, um, you've got this idea here, and I think it's a um, kind of a challenging idea because there's not a lot of clear guidance on what does it mean that uh, we ought to not indulge in our freedoms and in our rights, okay? And we'll talk about that a little bit later on, but I think I just want to kind of lay the the foundation uh, here as really clear. In the story of the prodigal son, it's pretty clear on the one side how the son himself indulged his uh, desires and wants, right? He pulled out his inheritance, which was actually a pretty normal process uh, for, for, you know, young kids if they wanted to, to get their inheritance early. Um, It wasn't, you know... Well, never mind, I should probably not, yeah, okay. Uh, it was a norm, somewhat a normal process. He went off, wanted to go and do his own deal, spend his own money, probably pretty reasonably because he knew that his brother was going to be the one to inherit everything. And he thought, yeah, this maybe take my little bit and go make something of myself. Made a pretty reasonable decision. The point, though, is he lived a life where he basically squandered all that doing exactly what he wanted to do and ended up in a much worse situation than he was before. He took his freedom and sort of ran with it. What started off as something that really wasn't a bad thing, okay? I know some people tend to think about that as like, well, he was just considering his father dead. We do inheritance when our folks are dead. That's not how they did inheritance. Inheritance you could access at any time. Um, And so he wasn't wanting his father dead. There was nothing wrong with the thought of taking his father's inheritance and going and trying to make another life for himself. The problem is as soon as he got loose... He just did whatever he wanted to do and had absolutely no purpose, right? His older brother said he spent it all on prostitutes. Um, That's actually quite a bit of money, quite a bit of a lot of money, quite a bit of money, a lot of money. Uh, Even in a small inheritance, uh, considering the land that his father owned. So let's hope that he spent money on stuff other than that. Um, Because that would be really, really a crazy lifestyle. So, but he went out and did what he wanted to do. But equally speaking, the older brother does the same thing. He indulges in his sinful nature when he gets angry 
about the lifestyle that he's been leading as if that lifestyle somehow was wrong or bad or all the choices he made were simply choices so that his dad would be proud of him at one point and give him a fattened calf. The reward was in the living itself and doing those things right because that reflected God's character and how we ought to live as people. And so equally speaking, he does the same thing as his brother, just doesn't have the same sort of consequences as a result. But both indulge the sinful nature according to this idea of uh, you know, worldliness and the idea that we would not consider what's best for other people and instead just pretty much live how we want. Let me give you a, a better example of this because I know some of you are like, well, what exactly are you talking about? Um, I see this, I think, a lot in dealing with mental health issues, okay? Uh, I know many of you, uh, well, probably because I've spoken about this before, I've taken depression medication now for, I think, about three years, maybe four years. And depression is kind of a tricky topic. Whenever I ask my students, I, I do this for two things, I do depression and alcoholism, and I asked them, how many of you think depression is pretty much just a genetic thing that happens, a chemistry thing, and pretty much always needs some sort of medication to fix? Well, depending on whether I have a pretty liberal uh, Generation Z class or a somewhat conservative class, I get different answers. But the majority of them say it's a mental illness you have, you need to take medication for it, blah, blah, blah. Um, and alcoholism, a, a few less people say that it's a mental health illness and an issue of genetics and that, uh, you know, you have to take medication for it or ultimately, you know, people have to kind of understand that this is just an illness, but still a lot do. And so that leads us into this really interesting conversation about how as soon as we label something uh, genetic or you're predisposed to it, somehow you have no real responsibility anymore in dealing with it appropriately. Okay, And I think this is a perfect example in my mind of, and I've watched this a lot in my own life, but certainly in the life of the church, people who once they feel like they've got something seem to lower their standards and limits and the bar for how they ought to act around other people. They indulge the sinful nature. I live how I want to live. And it ignores the fact, for instance, that only about 50% of people who even take medication from depression, for depression uh, are even helped by it. And that number is, is really, really uh, um, different when you talk about wealthy people versus poorer people. Wealthy people are much more likely to take medication for depression and not need it, and poor people are much less likely to take medication for depression and not need it, simply because obviously you've got to pay for these tests and for the medication and for healthcare and even be knowledgeable about it. But still, to my knowledge today, depression is a 50-50 thing. About 50% of people receive a lot of help from taking medication, and the other 50% need some kind of more counseling, intensive counseling, or even less intensive counseling, and medication does absolutely nothing for them. I can only tell you from firsthand experience in my own life as soon as I began taking depression medication, well, after the first couple of weeks, because the first couple of weeks are a little strange, you go from feeling a little bit like, wow, life is wonderful, I feel like I'm in heaven already, uh, but also, on the other hand, being completely constipated and having no sex drive and having night sweats. So, you know, now, this is just, uh, you know, everyone I'm sure experiences this differently, okay? Thankfully, that goes away after a few weeks. Um, but some of the, the consequences still linger. But the depression medication for me simply meant that I couldn't go as low as I, I went before. 
I would have periods out of the month, which seemed to be increasingly often or common, where I would not be able to do much of anything in terms of motivation. And so people who don't experience depression, they have a really tough time understanding what it looks like, but you basically just take away all things that look good, taste good, are good, and try to live. It's very tough when you have no internal motivation to do anything. And when you lay in bed at night or during the day and really wonder or wish sometimes when it gets bad, I'd prefer not to be living. And, uh, and it's just tough, right? But so for me, depression medication just simply did one pretty small thing, and that's it didn't let me get as low as I used to get. And so for three years now, I really can't remember a week out of the year or even like maybe a four or five day period where I was just out, like just couldn't do much. But before that, I was having those, those sort of uh, periods uh, pretty, uh, pretty regularly. And it turns out when you go in blood tests, you can kind of figure out some things about your serotonin levels being low. And apparently I have no testosterone, which is surprising, I know, because I'm pretty manly. Um, <laughs> and uh, also don't have the ability to produce uh, as much serotonin as a normal person. So all of you serotonin uh, deficient people, you know, we're out there, all right? Um, so anyway. What I want to simply say by that is this is an example, in my mind, of an issue today where it's very easy to be indulgent in, and it doesn't have to be an anxiety issue or a loneliness issue or some kind of mental illness or cognitive disability. Some of it is just our personality. We indulge in, this is how I am, and I'm going to live how I want to. I'm a terrible example of this. I mean, a lot of times I make an excuse for myself. Miriam's shaking her head that I'm a terrible example of this. Thank you. Um, and, uh, and it's just timing, I know. Uh, I just do this. It's, it's very easy for us to make excuses for how we want to live based on this idea that I have sort of no control over it. Uh, it's just sort of the way people do things. And we have to be very, uh, very careful. There's a heresy sort of deeply rooted in this. And I don't want to get too much into it. I know I don't want to get into a lot of things today, but uh, it's because I'm trying to preach this somewhat short. And, uh, and that is the, that one of the major heresies throughout the ages that, uh, that I can't really, I can't really accept God's salvation. And this is sort of a, a strange heresy that many of us uh, probably would never admit that we have, but I can't really accept God saving me. So I, and, and that actually will lead people into two different directions. Sometimes we work really hard to try to get it just in case, which is what, what, what Luther experienced in his life. I think for more of us, though, that just sort of lets us say, let's just throw the baby out with the bathwater and not even try. If I can't really accept this sort of perfection that the Spirit is, is accomplishing in my life, I'll just sort of go out and do other stuff. Uh, do anything I want. Sort of lower the standards that, uh, that I have and hope that somewhere along the lines, it'll sort of work itself out. So we have a lack of respect I think in that for God's character, that God has called us to be really specific kinds of people. And for those of us who fall super short of that, thank goodness the Spirit is in us, making up for all those shortcomings in our personal, uh, uh, our personalities, in our health deficiencies, and all of those things, the Spirit is working in those things. And I think that's really encouraging to know. And I'm certainly not making the statement that we ought to do the opposite thing and say, well, you have depression, so you just need to pick yourself up by your bootstraps and be good and be happy. That's a lack of understanding and respect for someone else's well-being, which I want to move into next. So a lack of regard for people's well-being. This is a live-for-yourself mentality. The church at Ephesus, okay, 
the church at Ephesus, the very first letter of the, uh, to the churches, and Ephesus would have been the first letter because it was on the sort of uh, first location that was in the route that the messenger would have taken from uh, John and, and Patmos. He, he says something that's really, really important and many of us remember probably, and that is, you know, you've lost your first love. Again, most of us have mis- misinterpreted this. We've, we thought first love meant God. But think about how few of you really loved God when you first became a Christian. You loved people. You loved the people around you. You had a desire for them and for their lifestyle. Loving God, in my mind and in my own Christian development, comes after a love for his people. Most people don't just start off loving God, okay? Think about what John says, it's impossible to love God without loving your brother, So in Revelation here, and and the church at Ephesus had become really hardened in their love for other people. They'd become about rules and regulations. And in this area, the ways that Jews were treated, uh, this kind of makes sense. But they had just lost their first love, their love for each other. It was gone, disappeared. It was a religious love for God that in reality wasn't a love at all, but simply a love for doing what they wanted to do that made them feel spiritual and felt feel religious. And it was just as worldly as the idea of living an indulgent, do whatever I want kind of lifestyle. Because it's ultimately like the bigger brother and the prodigal son. I'm living for myself. I'm angry at my brother. I'm angry at my dad because this thing has happened. And yet I have no sense that this thing, my life was blessed up to this point. So how could I possibly be angry at these things? Colossians 2 and 16 16 through 23. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility or worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. He has lost connection with the head from whom the whole body, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews, grows as God causes it to grow. Since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, live how you want, live for yourself, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are all destined to perish with use because they are based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body. But they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. So he says a lot there, but the main idea is that, again, this is still a worldly way of living when you come up with a whole bunch of new rules that separate you from all the other people around you. You're supposed to live like this. I'm supposed to live like this. The brother was indignant of how his younger brother lived because it, it, it went against everything that he had created in his own mind about how he was a good person. And so his father to uh, be okay with his son coming back was a rejection of everything that he believed was good about what he had done up to that point. Because again, his definition of goodness had everything to do with rules and regulations and a way of looking at the world that's not receiving reward from how I live, but receiving reward from the rules that I've set up about how I ought to live. And Christians are really good at this, and somehow we don't think of this as worldliness. 
And yet so many of the passages, just like this, are talking to Christians who have set up for themselves a system, a rule system, a reward system, so that they don't need God at all. I don't do this, I don't do that, I'm good, I'm great, I don't touch this, I'm not a part of that, and have separated themselves uh, from the head, is what he says. Because Jesus came and he did a whole lot of that sort of uh, calling out some of these rules and issue, uh, and regulations and uh, festivals and everything else that people had gotten so wrapped up in. Galatians 4, 8 through 11 Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who, by nature, are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, how is it you are turning your back to those weak and miserable principles? Live how you want. Live for yourself. Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You're observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. Mm, Ah, ooh, ouch. So we come up with these rules and regulations, and it's just as worldly. Um, you know, again, to go back to this idea of mental health, there are plenty of people still today who believe that you ought not ever take any kind of medication for mental health issues. And I don't understand their point because most of the time when I hear them talk about it, it has nothing to do with, well, because this is for this person's well-being, I think this, they're going to have bad side effects, I think it's going to make them a zombie. It has everything to do with, well... God doesn't want that behavior. It's not okay to do that. Some meaningless rule or principle or command based on human traditions for not tasting, not touching, not doing a variety of things. And that's just as worldly because it just goes on the other end of worldliness, but both sides have nothing to do with a respect for God's character and who he is or, or how to regard people's well-being, what's best for them. Sure, I'm sure it's really easy for you if you don't suffer from depression to, to be mad at people for taking medication for depression. I understand. I feel even worse, though, about people who somehow don't simply because they have, are surrounded by idiots who tell them, you know, that this is just not a possibility for you. Okay? That's really unfortunate to me. Now, I'm not at all advocating, you know, going out and let's say, all hop on pills, all right? Again, hopefully... I have explained to you that this is the other end of this problem in our society is that at one point, you know, we're going to have pills for everything. I'm an introvert. I'm going to take some medicine for that. And our medicine will probably just be, you know, smoking weed. Ah, uh, yeah, weed, you know, sort of like really loosens me up so I can really be an extrovert. Oh, okay, yeah, that's a great idea. Hmm. Uh, you think that's strange, but trust me, that's very much a philosophy in our world today among young people if you haven't spent much time around them. Okay. So, we get angry at others for them doing things that we're uncomfortable with, uh, with them doing, without really any concern or consideration for their well-being. And yet in Scripture, guys, we're, we're really, I mean, the commandments come down to what's best for others and ultimately reflecting the character of God to the people around us. The heresy sort of deeply rooted in this, uh, unfortunately, is I can do it. It's the opposite of I can't do it. It's that heresy that popped up really early on in Christian circles. It was kind of like, you know, I think if I just follow these sort of new Christian laws, not the Old Testament laws, we know those are wrong, but these new Christian spiritual laws, I can probably be a pretty good person. 
This resulted in a whole lot of isolationist group, like the Qumran community, where we get a lot of our Dead Sea Scrolls, who just kind of left society and tried to be spiritual on their own, as if society itself was the bad thing and not them. They weren't inside themselves, but their understanding of the world around them, uh, you know, the potential for evil. So I don't really have a summary for this. I know this is somewhat challenging, a little bit confusing, and even somewhat vague, and so I want to open it up. If you do have any questions, that's great. I just really want to, if you remember nothing other than, we've got to be, I think, very careful and smart in understanding and using the term worldliness. That if you find yourself using the term worldliness to simply mean people who go out and just indulge and live how they want, you may be you know, ignoring the own worldliness in you of being able to set up rules and regulations for how people ought to behave and act that really are simply human regulations and rules. They have nothing to do with caring about that person's well-being and even less to do with ultimately encouraging and wanting them to understand the character of God and live by it. But those are our two principles. Those keep us connected to the head because ultimately that's how Jesus lived. He was the perfect example of God's character and in everything he did, he was more concerned with the well-being of others than he was with his own well-being. And those are the things that we have to ultimately kind of, um, I think, internalize and live by to really not be worldly in our thinking and the way that we act. And I think those can help us in some ways in some of these gray areas, but we'll talk a lot more about them uh, in, uh, in the coming weeks with, uh, with alcohol. But I at least wanted to do that one first. So questions, thoughts, you guys good? Thanks for joining us for our sermon podcast. We would love for you to join us on Sunday morning or in one of our small groups during the week. And you can get more information about that at DentonNorthChurch.com.